I am essentially a static, contemplative and objective person, almost a hermit in daily life, and always preferring to observe rather than participate. My only natural and genuine form of imagination is that of passive witnessing. The idea of being that sort of um, disembodied, floating eye which sees all manner of marvelous phenomena without being greatly affected by them. I should describe my own nature as tripartite. My interests consisting of three parallel and disassociated groups. A, love of the strange and the fantastic. B, love of the abstract truth and of scientific logic. C, love of the ancient and the permanent. Sundry combinations of these three strains will probably account for my odd tastes and eccentricities. I could never write about ordinary people, because I'm not in the least interested in them. And without interest, there can be no art. Man's relation to man does not captivate my fancy. It is man's relation to the cosmos, to the unknown, which alone arouses in me the spark of creative imagination. You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast may contain adult language, conversations surrounding adult situations that may not be suitable for younger listeners, as well as spoilers for the films discussed on this podcast. You have been warned. Now, come on in. Destroyed on sight. Okay, we're back, and it is episode 104 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, and I am your host, Lee, trysting with bubble-headed co-ed, Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Who's going to believe a talking head, Harper? How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. My dog is chewing on some kibble in the background. I hope no one minds, but uh, yeah, I'm here. Watched some Lovecraft movies today, and uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about them. Eldritch Horror, yes. Uh, Eldritch Horror of, of late '90s production value is, is on the is on the on the menu today. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be finishing off our uh, first sort of look at Lovecraft adaptations here. Hopefully, Paul will join in. He's not here right now, but he might join in at some point. He knew this was going to happen tonight, so Paul, where the fuck are you, dude? But we are going to be looking at a Reanimator from 1985, and we're going to be looking at two short films sort of surrounding Lovecraft and his writings and his mythos. But before that, we'll just get into a little bit of house cleaning here. And 
Uh, I just want to mention two things right off real quick. If you have not listened yet, our good friend Lee Van Teef, the Wolfman, appeared on the latest episode of Blood on the Tracks, our soundtracks and scores sort of sub-podcast for They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. And, of course, predictably, he covered werewolf movies. So if you haven't listened to that yet, please download that and take a listen. Lee Van Teef is very expensive, so uh, I want to get the most out of the money I paid for this motherfucker. And... Uh, yeah, uh, please, please exploit Lee Van Teeth and listen to him and listen to some really cool werewolf film uh, soundtracks and scores, and he'll be back next for our Halloween episode, his annual Halloween radio episode. Also, my latest appearance as co-host of City of the Dead with our good friend James Murphy from the Pex Lives podcast, we covered Asylum from 1972. We're continuing our look at Amicus Films. We're going to be doing Tales from the Crypt next. The original Tales from the Crypt, not the bullshit movies from the 90s. And goddamn, all modesty aside, I think it's our best episode yet of City of the Dead together. And it was a lot of fun to do. And you guys should check it out. Uh, All these links will be in the show notes, by the way. So uh, there you go. Moving on, Daniel, sir... Is there anything you've watched lately you want to talk about, or...? Uh, no, I haven't really watched anything really worth talking about in detail. Um, I will say, as long as we're uh, hyping our appearances on other podcasts, other better podcasts, ultimately. <laughs> yeah. You know? Let's, let's be real <laughs> uh, about it, yeah. Uh, I did do a uh, Wrong With Authority bonus episode about two films, uh, two Romero films, which... You and I have not covered, but we've talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I think I don't know. Maybe one day you and I will cover them as well. But my buddy Kit Power and I decided to, who has been on this podcast as well, um, mm-hmm. we decided to do uh, the Crazies and Martin. It's kind of our um, memories of George Romero. We did record that right after George Romero died, and then I just couldn't get off my ass and edit that for a while. So, um, but but yeah, that's up now, and uh, you can check that out. That was a really fun conversation, and. Uh, it's actually fairly brief for us. It's about two hours and twenty five minutes long. So uh, you know, it's it, we're basically just in and out like a like a flash. And and I also told Daniel this, and I'm not just saying this because he's a great friend of mine and shit. This is probably the single best conversation I've heard about the crazies and Martin in podcast form. And I've heard a lot of them, almost like just ad nauseum to the point where I don't want to hear about Martin or the crazies anymore. But this podcast was great. It goes in depth about both films and really pays a really great tribute to Romero and his work. Picking two really interesting and not as obvious films from his filmography and just going on about them and talking about Romero as a filmmaker. I found it really insightful, interesting, and I think it brought a little bit of a fresh perspective to it that uh, I haven't heard on other podcasts. Honestly, uh, I, I, I told Daniel this moments before we actually started the podcast. I think their talk about Martin is better than what the projection booth did as far as talking about Martin. So uh, if, if that's not going to sell it for you, nothing will. And we will link this in the show notes as well. And it's definitely goddamn worth talking about. It's really, really good. Well, thank you, Lee. I, now, now that you've blown that much smoke up my ass, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't know what to say. I've peaked as a podcaster and as a creative person. 
now. <laughs> well, yeah, here's the thing. Also, you kind of ruined when, when we actually do the crazies and Martin, you kind of ruined it for us. <laughs> <laughs> Our episodes are going to suck compared to what you guys did in that one episode. But I think we'll find new things to talk about. I think, I think there's, there's more to say, you know, uh, but... yeah, yeah. But yeah, know, it actually, it actually ends up being. I mean, you know, kind of. We didn't even plan it this way, but it's sort of like the crazies is my favorite Romero, and Martin is Kits. So we ended mm-hmm. up kind of covering our two favorite films. You know, everybody loves Dawn of the Dead. I'm not saying Dawn of the Dead is not as good a film as right. the Crazies, but it's my favorite. You know, of the of the Romero films. So um, no, I mean there there there's a there's a really solid argument to be made that the Crazies is a better film than Dawn of the Dead. I think there is. Uh, I I, w- I would disagree with it just for personal preferences, but I I can't fault anyone who considers the Crazies their favorite Romero film because that's a great fucking film. So, but yeah, um, I do have a couple things I'll mention really quick that I watched. I've been watching Narcos season three. Uh, have you watched it? I, I can't remember if you watched any of the Narcos. I have not Netflix? seen any of Narcos. I, it's something that's kind of like a always in a sort of the periphery of my um, attention, mm-hmm. but um, I've never like sat down and watched it. So, you know, mm. uh, I'll just say like for anyone who's actually watched the first two seasons of Narcos, this is very much uh, keeping in line with the quality of the first two seasons. It's very good. Of course, it's very highly fictionalized and dramatized, dramatized and shit. You dramatized. Know, dramatized. Yeah. Um, beer and whiskey. I'm stupid. It, it does a really great job. The trailer for it looked really bad. I'll, I'll just say right offhand when I was seeing the trailer for it on Netflix, I was a little dissuaded because it looked like it became more action heavy and shit like that and less character driven. But thankfully, getting a couple episodes in, it's very much just in tone in with the first two seasons. Very character driven, very interesting. It hits all the points in general of the whole situation with the uh, with Escobar's cartel, and then it moves on in this season, focusing on the Cali cartel. It and it doesn't shy away from the fact that the U.S. was uh, manipulating all the situation for their own interests, and how a lot of the people who were trying to uh, bring the cartels down were like caught in between the cartel and the U.S. government. It's pretty goddamn good. Like it hits all the sort of points. In general, it follows history fairly well. And of course, you know, the dramatic stuff is, you know, they take some license here and there just to make it interesting. I like it. it so far, it's it's worked really well. I've enjoyed it pretty much just as much as I enjoyed the first two seasons. So uh, it's definitely worth watching. Uh, again, every season is only 10 episodes, so it's a good easy binge. Definitely worth checking out. The only other thing I'll mention is, uh, well, a couple other things I'm going to mention really quick, but also related to Escobar. Uh, I watched The Infiltrator from 2016 that is on Netflix with uh, Brian Cranston. Are you aware of that one, Daniel? I'm not. I've never even heard of it, but you have my interest with Brian Cranston. This is another one that's sort of related to the sort of Pablo uh, Escobar kind of. It's almost like a subgenre now where there's just been so many uh, films and TV series and shit that have been sort of focusing around this. And this is focused on the drug trade in Miami side of things. And Brian Cranston is one half of a team with John. uh, Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to fuck up pronouncing his name. Uh, Lou, Lou, Guizamo. Guizamo. 
Lugos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I was like, what's the what's the John that like I had no idea. I was a little yeah. like, you know. Did, could I narrow it down for you a little bit more? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> what's the John with like the slightly oddball name that Lee is gonna be embarrassed about not being able to pronounce? Yeah. My immediate thought was it's John Krasinski. <laughs> well, it could have been John Wayne. What the fuck? John man? Wayne, John, John, John Amplis from uh, yeah, obviously yeah, from Martin, yeah. Down, So you know, I was kind of <laughs> like I just went through all the Johns in my head. You know, John Lovitz. Yeah, you know, who knows? Jesus, it's funny. It's funny how like thinking about this film and then like recasting that role with just the various Johns. John Lovitz would not work in that, <laughs> in that film. But yeah, it, it's interesting. Like uh, Cranston and such and such are. Lucuzamo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Lucuzamo are uh, partners. They're, they're, they're paired together to go undercover and try to bust the uh, Miami end of the cartel drug trade. Pretty goddamn good. Despite the fact that Cranston's like 60 now and he's trying to play like a guy who was like 30 or 40 at the time when he, as, as the real life cop, they, they play off each other really well. Cause Cranston's sort of the straight lace guy. And then the other guy's fucking, he's, he's, you know, he's the more street wise cop who, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily play by the rules. As Wait a much. minute. Doesn't play by the rules. Well, there's a bit of a loose cannon there. Is that a little is bit? That, of, yeah. On what? This is a brand new dynamic that I. Yeah, actually, I know. I can't this, imagine. This, this Hold on. Become, let me get a pencil. <laughs> this might become a film formula. People might want to jump on this, right? But it's it's very much a tone with Black Mass with Johnny Depp from what two years ago or last year? I can't remember. Where it's kind of a docudrama. But at the same time, it tries to become like this sort of epic Martin Scorsese type crime film at the same time. And it doesn't quite balance those two things out very well. It doesn't quite work. At the same time, it's fairly interesting just as far as the performances are really good. But it it is kind of just ABC, one, two, three, cut and paste, crime epic kind of thing where you, you know what's going to happen from the beginning you know where every character is going to end up. It also has the problem of being like two hours, seven minutes. And at the same time, it's still like desperate to fill time for plot by just like introducing character after character that it just keeps dropping and then bringing back later on. So it's, it's kind of disjointed and not that great. But I mean, if, if you have two hours and seven minutes to waste and you can sort of like wade through that, the performances are really good, so for it, for that alone, it's actually kind of worth watching. But, you know, it, it's not a go-to-your-way kind of thing, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah, and uh, the only other two things so I'll mention... So I should not jump right on watching that as soon as we're done, like, just go and... Like, no, I, this, is, this is more like you have, like, a lazy Sunday off, and you have nothing else to watch. Yeah, check it out. You got two hours and seven minutes that you're just sitting on the couch, just vegetating... This might be for you. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Only other two things I'll mention, and these were movies I watched because I'm <laughs> going to be doing an appearance on Gary Hill's Cinema Beef podcast. I watched Blood Tracks, which is a Swedish The Hills Have Eyes ripoff uh, mixed with uh, more m- sort of 80s aesthetics uh, slasher film kind of thing going on. And I watched Cut and Run, which is a late period Italian exploitation film set in South America with uh, some sort of cannibal elements and stuff like that. It's actually a failed, well, a intended Wes Craven movie that 
fell through as far as Wes Craven directing it. And so it, it, it fell into uh, an Italian director's hands. Ruggiero Diodato, I believe his name is. And he did a couple of the cannibal films in, in the Italian exploitation genre. Um, really goddamn good, though. Like, both of these films are cheesy as fuck. They're bloody as fuck. But they're just kind of like balls up. They're just like really balls out, don't give a fuck kind of exploitation horror films. And... I won't say any more about them because uh, I want you to check me out on Gary Hill's uh, Cinema Beef podcast when I actually talk about these films. But uh, I just wanted to mention that I watched them. So there you go. Sounds like a plan. So less racist than Hell of the Living Dead is what you're saying? Oh, uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah, definitely a little bit less racist than Hell of the Living Dead. I was hoping we were going to say, yeah, a little bit more racist than Hell of the Living Dead, because then I would have to watch it just to see. For Cut and Run, there's this plot of Colombian drug cartels being attacked by natives of South America, and basically they're led by <laughs> they're led by a survivor of the Jonestown Massacre. Like, the second in command with for John Jones survived that, and he's gone into business for himself trying to control the drug trade. So basically what he's doing is he's attacking cartel drug camps, stealing their drugs, and killing everyone in the camp. So he's, he's, he's employed all these natives who are running around like shooting blow darts and, um, and stabbing people to death. He's got Berryman, who uh, played Pluto in The Hills Have Eyes. He's, he's that actor who like has no hair. And mm-hmm. like, he's totally bald and a little bit disfigured or whatever. Who just plays this like amazing, sadistic, badass assassin guy who is uh, part of the crew, and they're just like killing all these cartel guys. And uh, this reporter and her uh, cameraman get mixed up in it, and it's pretty. Int- and oh, by the way, Willie Ames is in this film. <laughs> well. That's just that. That's just required watching. Then, like, why are we not covering this film? Basically? Well, I, I, I honestly, I think this is one we should cover at some point because Willie Ames is in this film. This is like kind we of around. Cover, the... We have to cover anything with Willie Ames after uh, the Zapped discussion we did. You know, so. yeah. Th- this is kind of around the time Willie Ames was going into like a really quick descent into drug addiction and badness before he became what was it what's he now bible man yeah yeah (laughs) yeah this this is willie ames running around in a mickey mouse t-shirt like shooting uh native south americans and uh (laughs) it's it's not why didn't you lead with that that's how you begin with like (laughs) describing this film if you want people to watch it it's got it's got the second lead from Charles in charge in a Mickey Mouse t-shirt like killing brown people. All right, I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I could see where my mistake was not leading with that. <laughs> but yeah, uh I I will be on Cinema Beast. I have a feeling that will uh, show up a little bit later after our episode that we're doing tonight. I'll just link to Cinema Beef and then of course when the actual episode shows up, link the fuck out of it as well. But there we go. Mmm, great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Hmm? Chad, who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, 
That's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. No, I used to think that too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. Well, these two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Let me tell you, Chris, you can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, HPPodcraft.com Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. We'll destroy this Earth. Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the visual screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Helming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Helming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we might destroy the planet if it's Flash Dance. <laughs>
Yeah, so I guess we can move on now and get right to our first film. Basically, you'll be covering Reanimator first, and we'll talk about short films in brief afterwards. So we'll we'll jump right on to Reanimator right now. So we're going to be looking at Reanimator from 1985. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such dribble? These people are here to learn, and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the 6 to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. But lately they're getting out of hands. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. What are you thinking? How do you feel? You? 15 cc's of reagent being administered. Once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. Directed by Stuart Gordon. Written by Dennis Pelloli, William Norris, and Stuart Gordon. Of course, based on uh, Herbert West Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. This is starring, again, uh, Jeffrey Combs, who has popped up several times in this series as Herbert West. Bruce Abbott as Dean Kane, Barbara Crampton, again, as uh, Megan Helsley. David Gale as Dr. Carl Hill. Robert Sampson as Dean Halesley. Jerry Black as Mace. Carolyn Purdy Gordon as Dr. Herod. Peter Kent as Melvin the Reanimated. Barbara Peters as nurse, Ian Patrick Williams as Swiss professor, and Bunny Summers as Swiss woman doctor. Swiss woman doctor. Yeah, I love that. Um, It's an Oscar caliber film when you have a character named Swiss woman doctor. (laughs) Uh, So I'm assuming you don't have a synopsis for this, Daniel. uh, I I do not, no, unfortunately. Yeah, so I, I pulled one from IMDb written by Ed Sutton. So let's see what you have to say here, Ed. A medical student returns from Austria after working in regenerative experiments with a well-known scientist who died under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> he enrolls at Misotonic University, where he begs to differ with his professor on issues of the time of death and eventually enlists his roommate to help him continue experiments on reanimating the dead, based on a story by H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, it's pretty much the bare bones of this. Sort That's of the, the first 25 minutes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then they go to the morgue and shit happens. That's yes. the that's the last hour and 15. So this is your first time watching it, uh, Daniel. What 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 are your uh, sort of initial impressions on this one? 
Sure. Um, so just uh, for, for clarity's sake, I did watch the extended cut, 45-minute version. I know there are a bunch of cuts of this, and uh, so I did I did uh, actively seek out the, the sort of the fullest version because um, I figured that would be the one, you know, that would be the best to have my first experience. And uh, right. I feel a little bit embarrassed that I've not seen this film before, but everybody everybody who listens to this, all four people who listen to this know that, like, <laughs> my, my feelings are harder in general. That is, I'm a fan of the good stuff, but I don't seek it out. Anyway, this is the good stuff. This was a ton of fun. There's some character bits. There's some kind of logical stuff that, I mean, I could nitpick this a bit. But this overall is just a really, really phenomenal example of what fun you can have sitting and watching a, a splatter film of this kind. I really love the glee they go to with this. I love the fact that they don't try to explain it too much. I love yeah. the fact that it's, it's you know... um we did the beyond or from beyond we did from mm-hmm. beyond and uh from beyond is kind of it's attempting to explore some of the headier issues that lovecraft deals with right. um this doesn't do that shit at all this yeah. is completely uh it it doesn't rely on that instead it relies on the the sort of um taking the basic idea doing some really cool prosthetic effects doing some uh, some really nifty gore stuff and then basically just building a set of character relations that then will just sort of play out the rest of the film. And in that way, it's actually, ins- by ignoring everything that Lovecraft would have thought was important about this property, <laughs> it actually improves the property because it's yeah. not kind of ponderous and tenditious and, you know, sort of sort of pretentious, um, which I think some of the, I mean, even the Beyond kind of, kind of you know, it, it or from Beyond, so I keep saying the Beyond, from from yeah. Beyond, from Beyond, as much as I enjoyed that film, it does it does sort of like uh, it is sort of laying it on heavy at, at times, you know, certainly. Um, but but this is light as a feather. Um, I had a lot of fun watching it. It never drags, even in the hour and forty five minute version. Well, there's a particular scene that I know why it was not included in the original right. edition. But uh, other than that, uh, it's uh, once once you once you kind of get the plot started, it moves. It's a lot of fun, and I I just enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really fun little film. One of the best times I've had sitting and watching a film in a while, uh, legitimately. Awesome, nice to hear. Yeah, this this one, um, for the record, it, uh, it is based on Herbert West Reanimator. Although when Lovecraft wrote this, it was a six part series that uh, he basically just wrote for money, and it's mm-hmm. it's widely regarded as kind of like his worst fiction. Yeah, although well, interestingly, just just to, I, I read that in high school because mm-hmm. there was this book called Real Cinema with two E's, you know, real, you know, and um, it had a bunch of like short stories that had then, you know, basically like public domain shit that it, that then they could just publish and say, hey, look, movies were based on this, and I'd right. never seen most of the movies because it was like you know a bunch, of, you know, the story that Death Race was based on was in there. The day the Earth stood still was in there, oh, and yeah. then the story that Reanimator was based on, and I, I had no idea like what's Reanimator. I I never even heard of it, and this was, I was maybe like fourteen at the time or something, you know. Yeah. So and then later on realized, oh, I know, I now know what that film is. Yeah, just never watched it until now. I don't really remember the story except I remember that they're bringing dead bodies back to life. Um, mm-hmm. And it's creepy. And that's yeah, there, there's two sequels to this movie. There's Bride of Reanimator, and then there's Beyond Reanimator. This movie covers the first two installments, kind of of the serial, and Bride of Reanimator actually kind of covers the last two installments of this, of the serial, and then Beyond Reanimator is just like name in only sort of cash in kind of thing. But this is it, it, it's both like 
a really fun Lovecraft adaptation, but it's also like one of the most unlovecraft adaptations at the same time. And like I said, his original story is kind of regarded as one of the worst things he's ever written. And even he didn't like it at all. Like he sold each installment for $5 back in the day when he, when he wrote this and he had to write it in a way where every episode of it had to end in a cliffhanger and then every subsequent episode had to have some sort of recap before getting into the right. next part, right? So he didn't like that at all. That's not Lovecraft's format. It's not the way he wrote stuff normally. So it's, it kind of suffers in that regard. But yeah, I mean, as far as just taking like the central idea of this and just going balls to the wall and just, hey, how much gore can we get? on screen and get away with and how much sexual depravity can we get away with on screen? This movie, (laughs) yeah, this movie capitalizes even better than from beyond. Now, honestly, I think kind of from beyond suffered because from beyond followed reanimator and the stuff they got away with in reanimator was like, you're we're not going to let you get away with that again. (laughs) We're not going to let what From Beyond does is it goes further with the sort of philosophical horror. And the effects, you know, there are a handful of effects which are sort of more ambitious, I guess is the way yeah. I'm looking for, you know. So they kind of do the big, like, sort of um, the big prosthetic and the big like, kind of disgusting face goop and everything, yeah. which they don't do here. Here, most of the effects are fairly straightforward. I mean, you know, there's a there's a head and a, and a, and a medical pan, you know, for, mm-hmm. for a big chunk of the running time. And it's just got a bunch of blood around it and some like little goopy like tenderly bits hanging off of it. It's a really effective effect, but it's not ambitious in the. But way yeah, that, you know, yeah, it, it's the thing is, yeah, it's it's the simplest effect in the world because it's just basically David Gale sitting under a table with his head up in the tray. You know, exactly. it's, it's, yeah. So I mean, and I think this had actually a, if I recall correctly, I, I don't know if I had the budget for for Beyond when we did that episode, but I think the budget for this was. A boat on par. This so, one is nine hundred thousand yeah. for the animator. Yeah. So I mean, it's not like they had a big budget to work with, but I mean, they used it really well. I mean, their effects were very simple. A lot of it's just kind of uh, zombie effects more than anything else, because these are sort of zombies in a way. In a in a way that like Frankenstein is a zombie. From Beyond is four and a half million. So okay, okay, there you go. From Beyond is way higher. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but, but honestly, I mean, this is this is. Um, I mean, clearly they they had they had more money, um, you know, so they were able to be more, you know, to do bigger effects. Right, um, right. But this is um, again, this this is more fun and and in some ways more interesting, just because it is working in the in the kind of lower budget. They they have to just kind of work on character basis to mm-hmm. a large degree, um, which I like. I like the fact that it does just have to be, you know, a lot of the scares, I mean, I don't I don't even find this scary, quite honestly. No, no, because you know? this is essentially a horror comedy. Like, it, it's yeah. it's a parody of Frankenstein is what it is. Right. For, for me, the, 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 the only bits where the film is really trying to kind of be creepy is, you know, introducing our hero at the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Her, Herbert West is not a hero. He, he is a massively arrogant dickhead and he's incredibly amoral and creepy and the only reason you'd maybe root for him more than dr hill is because dr hill is a rapist and that's that's pretty much it well 
I think I think if there if there is kind of one uh, issue, I mean, just sort of thematically or not thematic, just sort of structurally with the film is that I never quite know exactly how the film wants me to feel about Herbert West. Um, yeah, because at first he's supposed to be this sort of threatening presence, and I guess that's a red herring because you know the film kind of shifts gears after the first like uh, hour or so, and then suddenly, oh, yeah. This other guy's really the 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 big the big bad. We're gonna be uh, scared of for the rest of the film, but uh, I mean, you know, our uh, our, our second lead, Bruce yeah. Abbott. Yeah, Dean Bruce Kane. Abbott. Dan Kane, excuse me, not Dean Kane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a different guy. <laughs> that's a different guy. Um, Kane, there, you know, he's um, he's our kind of all American boy, you know, sort of sort of med student, you know, fucking the hot girl, um, kind of having the, yeah, the, the best life ever, and yeah, then. We- uh, Creepy guy, which I was thinking about the lodger in that sequence, you yeah. know, when the guy kind of moves in. And it's like, no, I just need the basement. And it's like, well, this is not a bad sign at all, you know. Yeah, and they no. have a bunch of money. It's like, well, I guess we're just going to take it then. It's like, this this never ends well for anyone. Yeah, I, I I just need the basement. And, oh, wait, your beloved cat has disappeared. Oh, yeah. What's, how's that going to end up? Yeah. <laughs> Once he kind of sees the process of oh you can bring a cat back to life and and torture it like oh my god yeah. oh they throw it the, the part where the, okay so i just want to mention the fact that this is kind of a comedy parody makes the fact work that you have the scene with uh jeffrey combs with a obviously fake cat on his mm-hmm. back running around you you can you can buy it because it is it is a comedy essentially uh yeah. so so you have that part and then you get to the part where Dan they throw Kane the cat at the wall. And there's a little chunk of the cat that hits the wall and runs down the fucking wall. Like that's <laughs> such a great effect. And it was just like it was by mistake. It was like it wasn't intent it wasn't intended to have a little chunk like fall down the wall. It was it was hap- it was just a happy occurrence. And by God, it's gross. This movie is so gross. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's just, it's just, it really enjoys its splatter nature. It really oh, yeah. is just, it's, yeah. it's right there. And then, you know, like he brings the cat back to life five minutes later, like to prove, <laughs> well, it's dead now, right? Like, you know, he like picks it up and, and then like he injects it into the brain. Yes, into the brain, of course. Where else yeah. would you inject it? You know, right. <laughs> the cat comes back to us. Like, why is it making that sound? It's like maybe because its larynx doesn't exist anymore. You ask. <laughs> Its back is broken, and I mean, you want to talk about the fake cat on his back? I mean, the cat, the dead cat coming back to life, is the fakest effect in the film. But it oh, sort yeah. of works in that, like, it's clearly an animatronic, and we're clearly going to do other stuff with this later. So you know, it's fine. But, well, uh, and also there's the contrast of the fact that the the uh, dead cat they had in the fridge was a real dead cat. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so you look at that, and then you look in comparison to the stuff they were using afterwards. It's like, yeah, there's a little bit of a contrast there. It's just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's still. I mean, it's still. It's it's a it's a it's a fun sequence. But again, again, as a, as a you know, I, I I'm a cat lover. I I have a cat. Yeah. You know, I've had cats all my life, and I'm like, oh man, that's just put it out of its misery. That that cat does not deserve anything like this yeah no it's 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 hard to watch and you you root for the cat when it's beating the shit out of uh, dead kane and herbert yeah. west like it's just it's running at them and jumping at them and shit it's like yeah you go cat fuck these people up you know it's like you you deserve to go back to oblivion and fuck these guys for bringing you back 
I was kind of thinking about like um, Flatliners a bit. Uh, yeah, watching yeah, this film, it's um, very which is same clearly vibe. kind of inspired by the the same kind of concept. Yeah, and I was thinking we should probably cover at some point. I think it might be fun to talk about that, especially since there's a remake coming out. So. Yeah, there's a remake. It's got a. Yeah, no, there's there's a remake happening. Keith so, Sutherland, uh, Keith Sutherland is apparently in that as well. Maybe, and uh, I don't know if it's a remake so much as it is like a semi sequel. Because uh, yeah. from what I understand, he's playing the same character he played in Flatliners. So that's interesting. Yeah. No, my feeling is, uh, you know, if there is kind of one thing, I mean, you're right. It's it's a it's kind of a parody. It's a remake of Frankenstein. It's doing the same thing plot wise. And there's one thing that sort of I don't buy. It's the like uh, our, our our man Kane just kind of buys into this immediately within like 15 minutes. He's like, "Yes, we have to go inject an actual human corpse." You know? <laughs> um, I think the the sort of structure of Flatliners, where they're all kind of med students, they all kind of discover this together, and then you know, sort of sort of work in that. You know, so there's not one guy who's no, we have to push forward, and then the other guy just has to go along to make the plot work. I mean, I think that's the one thing that kind of yeah creaks for me in terms of the character motivation. Like, I don't get why Kane is, like, so immediately, like, yeah, I'm going to get on board with this, because um, yeah, clearly the only... this, is not, this is not, like, a healthy thing to be doing in your basement, you know, with no... Yeah, the only, at all. the only the only part there where it maybe semi-rings true is where he becomes as desperate as Herbert, Herbert West, because the Dean, you know, from the uh, direction and uh, sort of whispers in the ears of uh, Dr. Hill, basically expels both of them from the fucking school and basically ruins both of their potentials for ever having a career. It's like, hey, uh, you're not only collaborating with Herbert West, who is doing this really weird, dangerous shit. You're also fucking my incredibly hot daughter, so fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting you out of here. Uh, So, you know, at at a certain point, he has nothing left to lose. But, yeah, no, you're, you're right. The initial kind of falling in with Herbert West is, fuck no, why would anyone fall in with Herbert West? Because even from the beginning, he's an incredibly creepy, arrogant, distasteful piece of shit. I think what they're trying to do is to sort of make it to where the two of them are sort of buddies during that sort of middle section. Well, there's, there's almost where they they think you think he's, you think he's the threat at first, right? You think he's the creepy guy. He's the killer. Right. But then he kind of joins forces with, with Kane and then they sort of are working together. And then, you know, like you can just kind of get like the performance. Um, when you look at, um, Combs' performance. I mean, he's clearly kind of toned it down just a little bit. I mean, you get a little bit more of a camaraderie between them, which right. I think you you have to do to make the film work. I mean, they they can't be at odds with each other in this kind of tone of a film for that big chunk. And then, you know, so I feel like watching it, I don't really know how, again, I don't really know how I'm supposed to feel about him because, like, at first he's kind of, like, yeah. he's, definitely arrog- he's definitely an arrogant shithead, but he's kind of an arrogant shithead with good reason, you know, if he really does have this discovery that's going to change the world and he's trying to save like everybody in the world's life, you know, there, there is a sort of sense of, okay, I get that. He's got this amoral scientific drive. Like, you know, the, the worst fears of what a scientist actually is, is kind of what he embodies. And there is this weird kind of bromance thing that sort of comes between the two where, uh, you can even see Herbert West actually gives a shit about Dan's, you know, <laughs> his life. 
he, right. he brings him on as a partner and he, he does have dialogue where he recognizes that Dan is actually a potentially brilliant doctor. So he yeah. wants him on his team and Dan's moral qualms are just what makes him, you know, kind of doubt everything that's going on. But even then he still falls in, but you know, right. the film just kind of moves on and doesn't really give us a, enough time to really sit and think about these issues to its credit. But I do think that that is sort of like, uh, one of those just kind of structural things where once they decided to kind of structure the film this way, they kind of have to have this little bit of a creaky midsection where you don't quite know where, where things are going and how you're supposed to feel about it, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, ultimately it becomes a delivery for look at our special effects because they're really oh, goddamn yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> and look at and look at look at how much fun we're having. I mean, it's so much fun because the uh, the serum stuff that they give the, the, the it's just like um it's the glow, glow stick stuff. Day glow. It's a glow stick yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's exactly and, what they know, used. Yeah, it's it's super bright, glowing green. And yeah. anytime you have that color in a film, you're you're golden. Like that. Oh yeah, it, and, and, and it pops out. Like if you look at the way the the movie is shot, the palette is very muted. And then that that green just pops right up. Like everything else is pr- pretty dark. So yeah, the film also uh, just just talking about the lighting. The film also gets a, a lot of mileage out of like the uh, the swinging um, <laughs> lamps in yeah. certain sequences, particularly in that cat sequence where they know that effect doesn't look very good, so they just swing a light around. Yeah, <laughs> just don't look at it. Just don't look at it. It's yeah. fine. Follow the light. Don't worry about anything else. Just go on. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, no, I, then they go, they go and they do the, um, they inject a person, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have to look at the bodies and they, you know, that muscle band thing. guy that they injected, by the way, was like one of the uh, stunt doubles for Arnold Schwarzenegger. I believe it. He's got yeah, this... He looks great. He, lots of nudity here. You know, uh, there's, lots there's of a lot. Yeah. There, there, there's, there's a little bit of Barbara Crampton. Well, actually there's a lot of Barbara Crampton. There's quite a bit of Barbara Crampton. There's a, the, I mean, there is a, so we skipped over a scene because it's not in the original cut. There's a extended sequence of a, basically uh Barbara Crampton and um, Jeffrey. I don't know. Bruce Abbott. Gail. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, Bruce Abbott is the boyfriend, Dan Kane for uh, Barbara Crampton's character. And they had that little sequence where, uh, they're talking, and then it really, then it cuts immediately to them fucking, and then yep. you see lots of Barbara Crampton there for a brief few seconds, and which is definitely nice. And then you see her again in the not so nice sequence where the decapitated yet reanimated <laughs> Doctor Hill decides to redefine the idea of giving head to a woman. <laughs> yes, indeed. You gotta say, like, she looks great in this. I mean, I, oh, I yeah. hate to be that obvious, but no, she's phen- she looks phenomenal in this. And she still looks great today, by the way. And she's yeah. pushing sixty. She's a beautiful yeah. woman. No, I've, I've seen I've seen some some more recent photos, but yeah, no, she's she she's great in this. She's so much fun. I love her performance. She kind of gets that one scene. I mean, she she's really. It's a shame she's not in more of it. I wish she'd been kind of one of the guys kind of along with the the, right. the thing. But she gets the girl role, so she basically gets to be the girlfriend at the beginning and then the victim at the end. And yeah, it's yeah. sort of unfortunate because I think she's great in what she's in of this. Actually, this and From Beyond are both just really brave performances from her. Like, yeah. as an actress, really fucking great and incredibly underrated. Like, a lot of people don't give her as much credit as she deserves for her performance. I mean, ima- imagine, imagine Imagine being an, an actor and you're like <laughs> you read a script and uh, you know your your go to thing is 
So, and then a disembodied head rapes you. Like yeah. that's the, you know, and, and she plays it beautifully. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's amazing in that scene of both being, you know, of playing it for the, for the obvious sort of comedy value, the obvious yeah. sort of, you know, the black comedy, but also um, plays it as sort of a legitimate threat, you know? <laughs> and, and I think that if there's one scene that was really not going to work, like I can't imagine how that worked on paper. <laughs> yeah um i mean you know that that's just that 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 could be like the worst thing ever committed to film if and and yet it completely works in in context it's 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 actually a sort of minor masterpiece in how you can actually use sexual menace properly in a film and i'm not i'm not trying to really say oh look at look at how great this is but it's it's pretty phenomenally done. Once you accept that it's going to be done, you know. Yeah, if, like again, if this was uh, if this was stuck in a an Italian exploitation film, it just would have been nasty as fuck. Right. Like, you know, if if it, if it was something lesser, it, it just would have been nasty as fuck. But the tone this film sets from the very beginning, and the way the actors play everything, like I think everybody in this is phenomenal. And they just sell it, and they make it work. Like the the tone is consistent throughout the entire film, and it it doesn't feel off. I mean, it's shocking, it's jarring, but it doesn't feel off. It doesn't feel like anything you wouldn't expect to see in this film. Hats off to what they managed to accomplish in this film with those sort of ideas, especially in 1985 when it was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, no, I mean this film. I mean, it really does seem, you know chopped out of time in a way too because it is this sort of horror comedy it is this sort of schlocky thing but it's also remarkably sophisticated in the way that it does some of this and yeah. uh, i mean it, it's just sort of a. I, I think there's i think there's sort of a, a especially having seen from beyond already there there is a bit of a <laughs> you know lightning lightning in a bottle to, mm-hmm. to reanimate or anything I, I don't know that you that i don't know you could ever have done this again you know right but yeah, so um, then you you get a, quite a bit. There's quite a bit of plot in this, in terms of mm-hmm. I mean, because you spend the first like thirty minutes kind of setting up the character dynamics, and then all that just sort of plays out in the last hour. You get quite a bit of kind of double crossing, and sort of <laughs> the dad, the dean, who's also the dad of the girlfriend, is right. now going to kind of come after them. He's already expelled them, so he shows up while they're injecting the corpse and then he ends up being killed yeah and it's like when are you ever going to get a body this fresh again let's inject him yeah and then <laughs> why not they get interrupted by the cops halfway through and so they just go well he's just a crazy person now like i don't know he just went crazy and like killed a guy i don't know how that happened you know so yeah it's also it's not explicitly implied as well in basically any cut of this film because there's deleted stuff still on the floor depending on mm-hmm. even with the like extended cut where David Gale's character of Dr. Hill is he's got sort of hypnotic suggestion he's, he's powers supposed to have, like mind control powers or something yeah. right yeah so so he, and, and, I mean, he really does it in like one scene just like it's a really overt thing in one scene and then it's a really yeah so otherwise. so he uses his new revolutionary uh laser surgery which is basically a laser lobotomy to make these new corpses that he's reanimating open to suggestion. So he he makes the uh, Dean open to suggestion as a, as a pawn for him initially. Like there's interesting stuff going on in this film that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a really. I mean, it's it's interesting that like he has the sort of mind control powers, and Jeffrey Combs has the uh, the serum, the 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 reanimation serum, mm-hmm. and you know together they have like this power. Like if they just worked together, yeah, like, you know they could have literally like taken over the world. You know, this is a situation of two like-minded pricks who can't exist in the same time space because they're so alike that they hate each other. Right. You know, uh, Herbert West, Jeffrey Combs' character, he kind of shows up and he's in, in class and he's literally, like, mocking the guy. by Breaking, breaking the fucking pencil, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> next time, bring a pen. That's <laughs> a great little moment. And, and that builds such, like, cool suspense, too. It's like, it's just he breaks the first one and then he picks up the next one and it's like you're waiting for him to break that shit. And, yeah, yeah I suggest you get a pen next time, Mr. West. It's like, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, my read is that um, West underestimates Dr. Hill. Yeah. You know, I mean, he thinks he's just a hack. Yeah. When in reality, he has his own, like, kind of brilliant thing that he's done and just hasn't really talked about, which is sort of fascinating. I mean, I kind of get the sense that Dr. Hill knows that this reanimation is possible. Like, he's kind of done the research, but he's, like, holding back so as to not, like, reveal it to the world. Because he can't, he doesn't have it, he can't do it. Yeah. Um, by by the way, the, the doctor that Jeffrey Combs, uh, Herbert West was studying under was Hans Gruber, and this was before Die Hard. Nice. <laughs> so they make mention of the fact that Hill has, is just a hack compared to Gruber, and basically when West comes into Hill's circle of influences, if I can get the few notes, you know, the key notes that Gruber had from Herbert West, I can really perfect my, my own ideas and, and, and really, you really do something with it. So yeah, it's this really massive conflict between these two super egos who are just, they hate each other immensely and they're both arrogant pricks and they both have their own designs and, yeah, it, it's just really, like, again, the performances are so good. It's just like you buy into all these characters. You buy into right. the David Gale is this arrogant professor who lusts after the hot young Barbara Crampton. And Herbert West is this uh, amoral scientist who cares about nothing other than his research and uh, achieving his goals. And they play off each other really well. And it's like you can't root for any of them. You're, you're rooting basically for Dan Kane because he, he's really the only... He's he's caught between both of these guys, and he's and he's trying his best to not get his girlfriend killed. Is basically yeah. the... I, I'm rooting for Barbara Crampton to just leave all these shitheads behind. That's, Which she that's should really have done. Yeah, yeah, because you have that. Not even her dad. No, no, no. It, it's fine. No, I don't need to. I don't need to be involved in this. Yeah, yeah. Dad's a creepster too. It's fine. <laughs> well, the dad redeems himself a, a bit because. He was reanimated incredibly quickly, so he still retains a lot of his initial personality, mm-hmm. uh, which is a thing in this movie. Like, the longer you're dead, the worse off you are if you're brought back. Also, he's lobotomized. He has antagonism against Dr. Hill and everybody else, and he tries his best to actually save his daughter at the end and gets pulled apart by the other uh, quote-unquote zombies in a, in a sequence that is fucking amazing where it's just like it, bat shit is what the sequence that, that oh, yeah. term was created for it's like... oh yeah no no that 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 final um yeah i actually love that final bit just structurally because mm-hmm. you know we're in the last uh you know 
20 minutes of a film like this, you know, you're kind of like, all right, so, so things are, we're going to get some big effect sequence, but it's basically just kind of coasting plot wise. Right. Right. Um, but it doesn't, this film really doesn't. It really gives us twists up until the, the very end. Hill and West are really well matched for each other because West kind of comes in, he's got his own plan, which is basically let's overdose these motherfuckers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good idea. I don't know you thought that through, but all right, I'm with you. It's, it's very scientific. More serum. Let's just yeah. put more serum in them. Let's, let's just give them like a ten times the dose, and then you know they're done. <laughs> no, I I love uh, you know he kind of shows up. He's kind of got and he he's doing the like I'm the secret badass thing. They're releasing Barbara Crampton in the background. You know, in another movie, it's like oh he's one, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, and then uh, you know Doctor Hill's like oh, well. I have my plans too. And then it turns out, oh no, I've got every cadaver in here is now like controlled by me. And you don't understand that they're all going to come up and bat shit's going to happen. I mean, I really love that moment. It, it made me really respect the film that, mm-hmm. oh, we get one more, uh, there's, there's one more twist. It's not, you know, this supposedly genius scientist is, it just becomes uh, completely stupid in the last five minutes. Like he knows yeah, what's yeah. going on, you know, he's, he's laid a trap for these guys, you know? So, um, now, again, it's not like the most clever plotting ever, but it's clever enough, and it's a great moment. Yeah, the sequels cheapen this shit, by the way. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't even recommend you watch the sequels, because the the uh, Bride of Reanimator picks up right from this film, where Dr. Hill comes back. Even though you saw his head squished and thrown against the wall, he comes back in the second film, and this time he has bat wings grafted to his skull so he can fly around his disembodied head can fly around so you can kind of guess where that film fucking goes um <laughs> so bride of reanimator in 1990 i wonder if there's a film in 1989 that might have inspired those kinds of concepts no bat wings i don't think so i i, I just i i think they just Hey, what goofy shit can we do in the sequel? I, I don't even know if um, Stuart. I don't think Stuart Gordon did the. No, it was Brian Yuzna who produced this one did the directing for the sequel, and he's yes, yeah, and he's not as good. <laughs> he's he's just stick to producing. Let's put it that way. Um, well, again, that's a good moment to say. I mean, Stuart Gordon like directs the shit out of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know if. I, I was an admirer. I was an admirer of From Beyond. Like I was an admirer of the direction and the, the sort of structure of it. But this is this is a whole other level of, of like really solid, low budget, good decisions. You know, just, just yeah. And and he and again he, he cast his wife in this film before uh, uh, From Beyond, and she didn't even have to. You know, in From Beyond, she didn't have to change her wardrobe any. Same, <laughs> same, same character. <laughs> That's awesome. I wanted to mention Lovecraft's story that this is based on is actually one of the first fictional depictions of zombies as uh, scientifically reanimated corpses. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's not the Haitian voodoo stuff. The special effects department went through 25 gallons of fake blood for this one, which I can oh, definitely that seems believe. low, actually. That, yeah, I mean, it seems 20, a little low, doesn't 25, it? Yeah. Really? Only 25? Yeah. Again, using their budget very well, apparently. Uh, apparently, they made us think they splattered more shit out there than we actually saw. Let's see here. I mean, it's all on screen, I guess, is kind of what I'm saying. Like, it, yeah. I mean, they, they were very careful in the amount that they actually used, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. 
they actually initially wanted to shoot this in uh, black and white on 16 millimeter, apparently, to make it really gritty. Kind of glad they didn't, honestly. Yeah. I think this works as the best color, as a Color is such a big part of this. I mean, I, I think that makes me think they were originally going for a much more explicit Frankenstein parody. You know, because mm-hmm. shoot this in black and white and then like give it a little give it a few Dutch angles and this is this is basically let's pretend we're doing Frankenstein again, you know. And also, uh if if people are like considering this a parody of Frankenstein, yeah. <laughs> it's not young Frankenstein. Why even bother watching it? <laughs> right. It's it's more just kind of fun than like explicitly funny. Although greatest moment in the film for me, I, I'm just gonna say the funniest bit is when he's cut off the head and he's he's got it, he holds it, it doesn't hold it, stay up in the pan, so he takes the the little uh, thing that you put the notepads on, the little sticker, right. and he <laughs> sticks it on there, and I swear I winced when he just like threw the head on top of it. And I was yeah. like, oh, that just, that just seems wrong. Like, I know you just chopped <laughs> the guy's head off with a shovel, but somehow that just seems to add, literally add insult to injury. To be like, well, how else are we going to stand up? Just, you know... A... By, by, by the way, uh, interesting coincidence here. The decapitation with the shovel gag was also used in Day of the Dead. And the release date between these two movies was only like a month in part uh, wow. in 1985. So interesting coincidence there. Um, it does, it, there, there were some moments where I was like, I mean, you know, the whole like surgery of zombies. And, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's clear that these ideas were a little bit in the air that, that uh, you know. Reality. It was in the it was in the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. both playing with similar ideas. And honestly, I mean, I love Day of the Dead, but this is this is clearly a better film than Day of the Dead. It's more fun. It's definitely more fun, and it moves quicker. I mean, it yeah. it, wor- it works on that level. Definitely, it, it moves much faster. Also, of course, uh, very obvious. The opening theme borrows heavily from Psycho, and that was intentional. Again, this is another Richard Brand score. He basically ate. Uh, Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho with this, and because it was a parody, so it was like, okay, we'll we'll play around with that, make it a little bit more playful. Uh, although he d- actually did go over budget here, he it took him longer to do the score, so he actually had to pay fifteen hundred dollars out of his own pocket to uh, <laughs> make up for the expenses of taking longer to uh, wow. do the score. Yeah, well, it's a it's a great score. I actually really mm-hmm. really liked it. Also, just just as long, I mean, just the Psycho reference. Just you know, Lovecraft had written correspondence with Robert Block, who wrote mm-hmm. Psycho. So there is a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah, Robert Block was a disciple of Lovecraft's, so... Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, budget for this, of course, 900000 Box office was $2.02 million, so it did fairly well. That was sort of the impetus to, it's like, hey, we'll let you do From Beyond, which failed miserably. <laughs> DVD releases for this. Uh, Elite released a one and two disc version of this in 2002. I have the two disc version of that. Anchor Bay released uh, a similar version in 2007, which basically carries over most of the Elite discs stuff, although it has a little bit extra stuff itself. And Image Entertainment released a DVD in 2012. And Arrow has a Blu-ray in 2017. It was just released, I think, a month ago or so. And yeah. it looks pretty goddamn impressive. Those are your best options to search for if you're looking to grab this up. Although it is on YouTube as well, as you said. So Yeah. Although yeah. the uh, the version that I found on YouTube was the uh, hour 25-minute version. Mm-hmm. And it 
frankly, it looks like shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. The the version I watched, I, I mean, clearly I bought the really expensive Blu-ray. I didn't I didn't <laughs> torrent this or anything at all. No, that would never happen. Yeah, the, the version I watched looked great. I'm just going to say that. And it was uh, an hour and 45 minutes long. You know, when I was looking for, like, the different DVD versions, I found a, a review where um, people were talking about, like, how phenomenal this particular transfer is. This is this is one that, like, if you're going to, if you're gonna buy it, buy the good version. I mean, you know. Yeah, I have the elite release, and it's not the extended version. Like all the stuff that is missing from the extended version is in the extras, as like right. extended scenes and stuff. But as much as it's probably the best it looked up to that point, it doesn't look that great. It looks like a decent VHS transfer more than anything else, yeah. really. So yeah. Find the fucking Arrow Blu-ray or whatever else you can find online that's HD and go for that because, uh, goddamn, this film is a visual delight as far as like the effects and everything on screen. If I had if I had watched, I mean, I did kind of click around the the shitty version on YouTube just as in if I had watched that version, I would not have had nearly as much enjoyment of the film. I, I yeah. would say that um, a lot of what. I enjoyed about it was the like super high quality transfer that, that I watched. So take that as you will. Yeah, right on. Mr. Carter, have you read this book? Well, yeah, I leafed through it a bit. Have you spoken any of its contents aloud? Why? Legend has it that some of the words can act as keys which open invisible doors. Doors which cross the wall of sleep. The Necronomicon, so known as Al-Azif, the howling of devils. Some say it doesn't exist. Your uncle strongly believed that it did exist and that in the hands of certain individuals it can become a potent tool. He believed H.P. Lovecraft was such a person. I've never really known, Mr. Carter, how did your uncle die? His body was never found. I sometimes believe he finally succeeded in proving his theory. What do you mean? Well... The book suggests some repulsive things. Well, shortly after Abdul al-Hazred finished writing the Necronomicon in 738 AD, he is said to have been seized by an invisible monster and devoured in broad daylight before a terrified mob. You believe my uncle was devoured by an invisible monster? I don't believe anything, Mr. Carter. But there are some phenomena which are impossible to explain. I knew a man who dreamt every night that he was falling. One morning, he was found dead in his bed. All his bones were shattered. And in 1963, another man attempted to steal a gargoyle from an English cathedral. He was found dead, disemboweled at the foot of the gargoyle, whose jaws, of course, were stained with his blood. I know dozens of such stories, Mr. Carter, all of them true, and all of them unexplainable. Professor, have you ever heard of a man named Harley Warren? 
How do you know about Warren? Somehow, I met him last night. Young man, what have you done? Harley Warren was a dangerous maniac. Your uncle met him in the trenches in the First World War, and they worked together in the 20s. Whatever may have happened, whatever should happen, be very careful around Warren. Okay, we're going to look at two uh, short films as well. One's an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft. One's a semi-adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft and more of an exploration of his writings. First one we're going to look at is Call of Cthulhu from 2005, directed by Andrew Lehman, who is he's either associated or the head of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. I didn't go too in-deep on his background, but he has done some adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, recently did uh, Whisper in Darkness. And he is actually well-known for doing a audio book versions of H.P. Lovecraft stuff that you can find mm-hmm. online. And he's appeared on the H.P. Lovecraft podcast, hppodcraft.com, uh, which is one of my favorite podcasts. He's done some of the readings for uh, the two gentlemen who run that podcast. And uh, he's awesome. So uh, good on Andrew Lehman for doing this. Of course, uh, the writers, based on the short story by H.P. Lovecraft, uh, written by Sheen Brannery, who basically just adapted this. And it's starring Matt Four as the man, John Bolin as the listener, Ralph Lucas as Professor Angel, uh, Chad Pfeiffer, who is another, uh, he's one of the co-hosts of the H.P. Uh, Podcraft.com uh, podcast. As Henry Wilcox. Starting to get a sense of how this got made. Okay, continue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Susan Zucker is landlady. Caliphatic Pool as bartender. Wow, that's quite the name. John Kelm Antesky as Professor Hall. Jason Owens as Professor Quintana. D. Grisby Poland as Professor uh, Touchton. David Mersault as Inspector Lagrasse. And Barry Lynch as Professor Webb. And this is a short film. It's only about, what, 56 minutes or something along those lines? And it is done in the style of a 1920s silent film. And they go to excruciating detail to make this feel like an authentic 1920s film. Like, they go beyond what Quentin Tarantino did with, like, The Grindhouse, where, hey, let's put some neat filters on our film and make it feel like it's an old film from the 70s. Here they they go all out and try to make a legit silent film. And I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what your uh, thoughts are this uh, on this, Dan. I, I think this is real. I mean, I really... I guess the joke I was making there is this is very obviously made by people who are deeply in love with H.P. Lovecraft, who are mm-hmm. not necessarily professional film. I mean, it feels a little bit like a student film to me. Right. And which isn't, which isn't, I mean, it, that's not to gainsay it. That's just to say it, it kind of has this student film kind of uh, aesthetic. It, it's obviously not made with a lot of money. Clearly they kind of spent the money where they needed to. Um, it's also very much, made in 2005 meaning that you know before dv cameras kind of got it looks a little bit like it's shot on on video um yeah. you know just black and white video with like really cool you know and uh you know just to that degree it doesn't sell itself as like this was actually made in 1926 it sells itself as a bunch of students 
or you know, kind of low budget filmmakers made something that looked like it was made in 1926. It's it's a it's a it's a visual it's a visual pastiche is what yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. and uh, no, what I really admire is the um, the handmade quality of like big chunks of it. The sort of German expressionist, um, yeah, the paper mache almost art in, in pieces of it. The stuff that really seems to come from that era. That's where they really put their attention to. That's the stuff that really looks phenomenal. That's the stuff that I think is like bar none, like really, really phenomenally good. Very, uh, yeah, very Doctor Caligari in its. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very much in that in that tradition. So, all that stuff, I've got no complaints about. That that's not the issue that I have. For for me, it's like it's not even an issue. It's like, look, it's made the way it's made. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you know, they did what they could with what they had. You know, and ultimately, this is the, this is the film that resulted from it. In terms of the the film itself, in terms of like how you know the the story and you know how it's made and directorial choices and you know like the the actual sort of cinema of it, I'm kind of talking about the the production value because I think the production value is slightly lacking just from mm-hmm. what what I would want it to be as like the great adaptation of Call of Cthulhu, which I have not read Call of Cthulhu. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get the time to 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 do that this week. But structurally, I really love the film. I really um, wish I could get a really like nice version of this to watch because the version that I had, it is on YouTube. It has like Portuguese subtitles that show up, and then suddenly right. you can't read some of the original English uh, title cards. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so there are kind of big chunks of this where I, I wish I could have gotten a little bit more sucked into it, to really kind of following along the way it the way the film wants me to. But overall, I, I do I do really enjoy it. I do really admire it. I think you know if I'm if I'm critical, it's because it's good enough that I wish it was I wish it was one step better, you know, and really kind of sold yeah. that twenties like, aesthetic a little bit better. It, it, it definitely feels like something that they should try another shot at, where they yeah. can bring it into the digital age. Because yes, yeah, two thousand five. This is not high def. I mean, people have asked for this on Blu-ray, and it's just not possible because it's not a high def possible kind of thing where they can like make it any better on blu-ray honestly the worst thing that digital video does at least you know it's less of an issue today but high contrast photography you know and grain are like the two things that like digital video in 2005 did not do very well yeah and those are the thing you know a lot of the footage looks like you know in terms of they're trying to do the high contrast photography and it just looks like they're shining spotlights on people's faces from right six feet away and that sort of thing, like if you're familiar with silent film and you've kind of watched enough of it, that's not what silent film looked like at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's maybe ten years later. You know, they're kind of doing that kind of stuff, but then they're not doing it on that kind of digital stage. And so it immediately makes me think, oh, it's a bunch of film students, you know, like shining lights in those faces, you know, yeah. as opposed to really kind of drawing me into the film. That's in some ways just the the sort of um, the a failure born out of ambition. You know, yeah. where they were trying to do this thing that was as authentic as they can make it, and I believe they did that. I, I again, I'm, I admire the filmmaking. Um, it's just sort of you can't talk about it without saying, like, look, there are just some technical issues that they just couldn't get around. You know, yeah, as like a student film level thing, like this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. the achievement they've they've gotten here, and it it had a fifty thousand dollar budget. So I mean, yeah. and and every penny of that is on screen. Like, yeah, there's no, there's and, no that. and what I love about this though is that. It's it is a really good sort of combination of Cabinet of Doctor Caligari and like King Kong basically like yeah. it, it's it's kind of like that because you, you do see Cthulhu here 
um, in brief, and he's very much presented and animated in a way that King Kong was in in the original King Kong. There's kind um, of a claymation aspect, but but like in a in a in a in a good way. And there's a there's a kind of a paper mache quality to him. Yeah. You know? If you're not familiar with the Call of Cthulhu, this does follow the story very well. Uh, essentially, the central idea is the discovery of this idol of Cthulhu, and then the investigation and discovery of the cult of Cthulhu, which is worshipping Cthulhu, who is... He, he's become the pop culture icon of Lovecraft, where everyone just talks about Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos. But Cthulhu actually, as written by Lovecraft, is actually not a major figure in his pantheon of gods. He's, he's actually more of a high priest of the other gods in his pantheon. But at the same time, he's still this incredibly powerful alien entity who, if you looked upon him, you'd go mad and he could destroy the world if he ever, you know, came awake again. Um, so the idea is the cult of Cthulhu is trying to awaken him from his sleep in the city of Ryla, which is, deep under the Pacific Ocean. So basically, this is the investigation of the cult. Uh, it, it shows the episodes of people finding the cult out in like Louisiana, somewhere in the mm-hmm. bayou. And by the way, if you're going to do a presentation like this, 1920s silent era film, you're pre-Hays Code. <laughs> you, you could have had those cultists nude because the cultists are in the actual original story are basically described as being like nude heathens who are writhing around and trying to get Cthulhu uh, resurrected and stuff. So you, you could have went that far if you'd wanted to, you could have done that. So just saying, um, it might've offended, it might've offended the modern sensibilities of the uh, Lovecraft. uh, obsessives. I I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think it would have worked. I I think it would have worked, but uh, that's a minor nitpick, but, but yeah, it it basically revolves around the various uh, different people who are encountering the Lovecraft or, I mean, the, Cthulhu cult, the uh, subsequent resurrection of uh, Ryla and Cthulhu for at least a brief amount of time, and the in, the accounts of that. And this film, I think it does a really good job of that. I think the strength of this plays to the actual Lovecraft story, where it's a silent film, so your exposition is very limited. So you don't get to describe a lot, so you don't get to spoil a lot. It plays on that idea of the less you know, the more scary it is. Just the German expressionist Dr. Caligari angles play into the descriptions Lovecraft gives of the city of Ryla and his other descriptions of just like alien architecture that humans encounter when they encounter these forbidden lost places they're not aesthetically pleasing to our eyes where they're they're very alien and weird and i think that really is a big strength on this film it just really portrays that kind of idea very well i i really do love this adaptation i mean it does have its flaws like you pointed out but for what they accomplished here I think it was really a, an amazing job, and at 56 minutes or so, or whatever it is, it's a very brief watch. Yeah, I think I, this one is like is like 47 or 48 minutes. I think the yeah, other one is like 56 minutes. Yeah, so. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this, this does its job in its brief amount of time, and like I was telling you, it ignited my love of uh, silent films to the point where I yeah. want to read, do some more silent films this October. So uh, and at the very least it's accomplished that, but uh, I think it's very much worth 
checking out the only version on YouTube again, as we talked about, unfortunately has um, some shitty subtitles that at times impede the uh, title cards. But um, <laughs> if you, if you're an English and not Portuguese speaker. Yeah. Then, yeah. You know, if and, you speak you Portuguese, know, you're golden. But all you know. of our Portuguese listeners uh, just yeah. jump on that shit. But still, Honestly, I don't think it impedes it that much, and it's, yeah, yeah, it's it's more just like it sort of takes me out, and I'm I'm trying to figure out is there something interesting going on in the okay, and also yeah, to, to to be fair, I can see that coming uh, from your perspective where you're new to this and you're jumping right on it. Like anyone who knows the story, they can just sink right into this. And yeah, yeah, give a fuck. Right? Which which is which is again, I mean, I, I think I think if there's, I mean, you know, it's 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 again not a not a not a negative thing that. The film is clearly made for the Lovecraft fans. Oh yeah, it's made by and for Lovecraft obsessives. So you know, it's it's designed to kind of tell that story, and I think it tells it very well. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. really compelling stuff. I mean, it's a little bit of a style exercise, but not necessarily in a bad way. Just sort of in a okay, we've decided to do this. It doesn't wear it. It's welcome, and uh, and you know, big chunks of this look phenomenal. I mean, again, any of that sort of paper mache kind of stuff, any of the. Uh, the German expressionist, the Caligari uh, kind of paperwork and the and the set design and everything, all of that looks absolutely top notch, phenomenal. Um, yeah, there, there and, are no complaints in, from from me about any of that. And it, it presents that horror trope of people continuing to make the same mistake over and over again because it sort of ends on the idea of the person who's reading these accounts is probably going to investigate. Cthulhu and the Cthulhu cult and is probably going to end up repeating events and being damned just like everyone else who has sort of dived into this problem, this conspiracy and shit. So, so it's got that going for it. I think it's a really great production and uh, it's definitely well worth looking at. Yeah. And uh, so we'll also just briefly go over out of mind, the stories of HP Lovecraft from 1998 and this is directed by Raymond St. John, based on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's writings, of course, and also written by Raymond St. John. This is starring the amazing Christopher Heiderdahl d- playing H.P. Lovecraft which is, here. Which is the reason to watch the film. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Uh, Peter Farbridge is Harley Warren, Art Kitchen as uh, Randolph Carter, and uh, Michael Seinlikoff as Henry Armitage. This is uh, essentially a short film that's in part the uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward. That was the the film we did a couple episodes ago, The Resurrection, is also based on. It's got that same sort of central idea there of a ancestor reincarnating themselves through their descendants. So there's that in there centrally. But this is much more focused on trying to explore H.P. Lovecraft's sort of thoughts, his sort of uh, ideas on fiction, on life, the basis behind his writings. So you have these little clips here of what are pr- proposed to be like a, a recording of H.P. Lovecraft on film talking about his writings. And what these are uh, derived from are actually his actual writings, his correspondence, and a little bit of his fiction as well, but mostly his correspondence. And H.P. Lovecraft, he he talked with a lot of the authors of his day. Uh, A lot of the authors that he uh, influenced were all sort of pin pals of his, he was like constantly writing letters. Like there's thousands of letters of his that are in his museum collection, I guess. Yeah, this is basically trying to focus on what H.P. Lovecraft's sort of central philosophies were about his writing and 
his sort of stance on existence in the universe and things like that. So uh, I'm interested in knowing what your uh, sort of thoughts on this are, Daniel. Yeah, all the bits with uh, Heyerdahl as Lovecraft sort of talking to camera and all the, you know, when you're actually sort of getting uh, Lovecraft's thoughts on his own work kind of through that. I mean, honestly, the production on that is good enough that for, you know, the first like 15 seconds, I was like, wait a minute, did, did he actually, like, I didn't recognize the guy or anything. I'm just like, is that actually Lovecraft? Then you think like some, some people on, actually thought that some people actually Lovecraft's like life, like, no, clearly this can't actually be it. And then like, eventually you realize, oh, they just kind of put a filter on it. It's fine. You know, mm-hmm. like, all that stuff is, is phenomenal. Uh, I really loved uh, sort of that aspect of it. The performance is, you know, t- I mean, you know, it's tough to say like dude sits in and reads lines into a camera and say it's a great performance, but it is like you really get a sense of who Lovecraft must have been in life by listening well, he, to Well, yeah, he's words, got you know? uh, like, I mean, nobody really knows what Lovecraft sounded like, but his speech patterns and the way he does his performance, they do give a sense of character there. They do give yeah. a sense of authenticity that uh, is really real, really well done. Well, and, and it, it touches on this sort of, I mean, I see, I see this as less sort of about a particular, it's almost less about Lovecraft than it is about, or less about Lovecraft stories and more about sort of Lovecraft as author as mm-hmm. sort of the way we remember him. Um, because, you know, it's Lovecraft and then like the dude gets the, you know, the book and then, um, turns out that like Lovecraft was actually experiencing some of this stuff or was sort of experimenting with this stuff. And it's sort of, so it's boring this idea. I mean, it's doing that like standard, you know, like what if, what if Lovecraft really was experimenting with, uh, you know, Cthulhu is sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of, uh, you know, this is the nineties and this is just how we like do science fiction. You know, I, I think I, I I sense maybe there's a little bit of confusion there from you, and I just want to maybe like elaborate on that a, a bit if I can. Sure, sure. I, okay. I I I will admit that like this did not like other than the sequences with Heyerdahl as Lovecraft, this did not grab me. Um, the aesthetics are very like Red Shoe Diaries for me. You know. So, <laughs> God um, damn that that is spot on. That is fucking spot on. I did not. I did not think of that before now, but it's like, yeah, David, so, David's so, a company could have been in this production. <laughs> so what you're going to tell me is it's not, it's not actually Lovecraft that he's meeting. It's some other guy who was, just, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I completely missed like all the details of this storyline. I apologize. I kind of watched it quickly while like reading uh, stuff about it. So uh, are, you know. are, you, are you saying this is the gay version of the Red Shoe Diaries? <laughs> I, I don't. I I have I have uh, like uh, you know. Um, I just I kind of don't know what's going on in this story. Like that's yeah, sort of where oh, I'm oh, okay, yeah. Um, I kind of get the general gist of like what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think, but I don't really know what's happening in any given moment. Like I okay, couldn't so, describe the plot of this to you. Yeah, because the plot is very it's, it's very weird, and I I totally admit that. And anyone who's a novice to Lovecraft is going to be confused with this to a certain degree. What this basically sort of hinges on is Lovecraft's writings about dreamlands. He mm-hmm. was very big into that idea of what we dream is actually in a new, it is our actual realm of reality. 
and and in some cases it's much more real than what we perceive as reality the idea of people can meet themselves and meet other people in the dreamlands and encounter each other outside of basically time and space so you sort of see that in this production where the guy playing randolph carter encounters hp lovecraft in the dreamlands essentially and hp lovecraft is kind of seeing his future in the dreamlands like he's seeing where he'll end up being like remembered as a guy who wrote fiction and appears on people's t-shirts and shit and but also at the same time it adapts case of charles dexter ward where randolph carter's descendant is trying to reincarnate himself into his body you know he's trying to influence he's trying to make randolph carter uh read from the necronomicon certain passages and then that will allow him to come out of death and you know inhabit his body and shit like that so there's a little bit of that in there um so basically what it does is it, it touches on a lot of different aspects of lovecraft's fiction and tries to give you like an overall idea of what his uh sort of mythos was based upon and the sort of ideas he was going for and i mean the dreamland stuff is kind of a really deep central thing to a lot of lovecraft stuff that isn't really touched upon a lot honestly like it's not something that's explored a lot it's clear that lovecraft just from the the bit of reading i've done you know it's clear that lovecraft had phobias as a child Mm mm-hmm and had and had these like very um you know the night gaunts or you know right. something that he actually dreamed about as a child and described in the way that uh, Heyerdahl as as Lovecraft describes them in the film it's fairly clear that like basically what he does later at least sort of my feeling you know is that what he does kind of later in life is he starts to as he matures as an adult as he matures as sort of a, a thinker and as someone who's kind of responding to the world he sort of personifies his fears about modernity through these things that he's always been scared of and so you know this fear of sort of the unknown becomes this tentacle monster you know because he's you know he dreamed about tentacles and was like terrified of like the squishy ickiness of it and then like starts to associate those things together and that's that's sort of central to lovecraft's appeal is that he's able to kind of connect these sort of ideas together um so so uh you know i, I kind of get it on that level that that you know there is a dreamlike quality to this i mean it's ultimately you know what lovecraft is is aiming for is this sort of beyond rationality that we should be that, that there are things inside us so they're you know sort of you know at the, at the at the not necessarily inside us but things from outside that we're able to experience only in our kind of dreamlike state which right. are nonetheless present and are out to come and eat us if we pay them attention basically you know <laughs> yeah because because randolph carter is essentially in his dreams he's transported back to uh his uncle's life in this right. in this film where he sees him associating with harley warren and uh the weird experiments he was doing and shit like that and that touches upon like another story of lovecraft as well so this like this film basically references a lot of lovecraft stuff it it definitely mm-hmm. is for lovecraft geeks but at the same time it does do i think a really good job of kind of exploring what lovecraft as an author actually like cared about and wanted to write about and what his sort of central premises yeah. were for a lot of his stuff and yeah, no, I totally, I mean, it, it feels, even though I don't know the, the kind of background, even though I got lost, obviously I've completely yeah. lost 
the plot. Um, it strikes me as something that's uh, it's there's there's a bit of a kind of a Lovecraft fan fiction element to it, you know, mm-hmm. where um, we're kind of we're kind of uh, writing in that style. We're kind of talking about the same kinds of ideas and trying to explore Lovecraft's legacy to a certain degree of, of right. you know, who is he to us today? And I think that's valuable. I, I just I, I feel like. You know, again, I think the again the production value kind of let me down just a little bit, or just distracted me. A yeah, little bit. I mean, yeah, it's um, it's nineties TV movie. Although some of the dream stuff is actually really effective. I mean, I guess you mentioned Tales from the Crypt earlier. I mean, there's a bit where uh, you know nineties dude, you know, has a dream and uh, he gets dragged under a bed, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's a, that's a pretty effective little sequence, you know. Um, and I I really like the stuff where he basically he talks to. Henry Armitage, the the old professor guy, where where he brings the book to him and talks to him, and and he basically gives him the rundown of like, yeah, this is a Necronomicon. It's a really bad book, by the way. Stay away from Harley Warren because he's a very dangerous person. And it's like, yeah. So Henry Armitage actually knows that, yeah, some of the stuff you're dreaming is probably actually happening. You know, it's like actually yeah. real. And Henry Armitage, by the way, is like an H.P. Lovecraft character from the Dunwich Horror, who's one of the central H.P. Lovecraft heroes. Like, he's one of the occult detectives, almost, that he he wrote about, who's mentioned in several of his stuff. Really good stuff. Like, again, it, it definitely is for fans of Lovecraft, but at the same time, I find, like, it's kind of a film that's very inclusive. Like, you're new to Lovecraft? Here's what you can kind of expect. Also, I, I... (laughs) <laughs> I, I just want to mention there's there's a scene where uh randolph carter uh by the way the randolph carter in this is not the randolph carter of hp lovecraft's writings because he's actually the main central hero of a lot of hp lovecraft stuff so he doesn't meet the same fate that the randolph carter does in this film but <laughs> There's a scene where he's walking through that tunnel and he sees this weird, like at the other end of the tunnel, he sees this weird, like uh, other dimension appearing at the end of it. And the, the, my immediate thought is that is uh, Gozer the Gozerian's dimension that uh, Sigourney <laughs> Weaver says sees in her fridge. It's pretty much the same shit. <laughs> pretty much. I, I really like this one. Again, I'm biased, of course, because sure. I am a Lovecraft fan. But I would recommend this to people who are not necessarily so familiar with Lovecraft. Like, this will give you maybe kind of an idea of what uh, Lovecraft was going for in his stories. And, again, Christopher Heiderall's uh, fucking performance is fucking immaculate and awesome. Oh, yeah, no. And, I mean, if nothing else is worth viewing just for that, just to just to kind of get that performance. Right. Because that's a, that's a phenomenal performance. And uh, just uh, getting a sense of um, who Lovecraft was, you know, sort of sort of as a thinker, which I think yeah. the, film, the film gets across. Even if, you know, as, as me, like that stuff was so compelling that I sort of started Googling and mm-hmm. reading a bit while it was sort of playing <laughs> and uh, just sort of distracted me from the film itself a little bit. But um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I will say, I will say this and um, you know, kind of doing these couple episodes with you have definitely made me want to uh, start reading some Lovecraft, which I wasn't really expecting to kind of come out of it with that. I was kind of expecting to go, yeah, okay, I'm done. You know, like, I, I, nice. And, nice. Um, and really I, I am kind of sitting there. Okay. I, I really need to sort of uh, get my own personal handle on some of Lovecraft's writing. And, cool. uh, cool. and well, particularly some of the uh, some of the stuff he he has to say in this film, some of the some of the sort of dialogue that we know comes from his yeah. letters. 
I'm, um, I'm, I'm glad they gives me it, it, it's compelling. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting. It, it, it kind of makes me want to kind of draw myself into Lovecraft himself a little bit more. And I think the film just didn't live up to that in terms of, uh, you know, I got more interested in Lovecraft and less interested in the uh, version of that was being put on screen, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. I'm actually glad to hear that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Lovecraft definitely comes with baggage. He's definitely, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, but I mean... Oh, he's this... racist as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, he's a proto-fascist. Like, let's not, let's not, let's not make any bones about that. You know, like, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of shit even in what we've seen that, like, this this guy was was not a big not a big fan of democracy and like you know people <laughs> that were not like him. You know, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. who Lovecraft is. You know, yeah, but uh, at the same time, he was also an atheist and he had some very interesting ideas on. Yeah existence and death and things like that yeah. that are very much worthwhile probing into so yeah yeah uh, well and and the saying i mean saying is a i mean a lot of people in that time period were you know, um, mm-hmm. you know I, i'm not I, that wasn't me trying to uh you know he wasn't literally hitler you know no, 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 <laughs> and no, no. like exploring exploring the ideas of, and and all also to be fair, the ideals of fascism that he was interesting interested in were not necessarily Hitler's ideas. No, no, no. He's he's a little bit more of a Spinglerian than a, than a yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But uh, I I think both of these short films are uh, interesting to check out because a they're short, so you're not going to waste a lot of time on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think both of them are pretty good insights into uh, Lovecraft, and they're good like little supplements if you've been following along and have been interested in checking out Lovecraft stuff. So. Uh, that's a yeah, kind of where I, I sit on it. Yeah, I agree definitely. And uh, I'm really happy that uh, you were able to join me for these ones, Daniel. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know, I'm I'm always I'll show up for anything. You know, sometimes I watch things with half an eye. I really just thought you and and Paul were going to geek out over this, so I wasn't going to have to deal with it. You know. Yeah, but Paul never showed up. And I kind of you know I went through the other two. You know, I kind of I kind of did the the glance through, so I, I wouldn't be completely ignorant and have to like step out, but. I really thought Paul was going to be here, and then I could just yeah. listen to you guys geek out about it. But apparently, he can't show up for his own podcast. So you know. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you you brought it though, so uh, that's how we go. That's yeah, what yeah, happens. Yeah. Uh, so next time, next episode, I'm not going to say necessarily next week because my schedule is still fucking disastrous. So it We're might busy not happen. People are adults. We have things going on in our lives. Yeah, I'm 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 not that adult, but I still have a busy schedule. Uh, but next time, uh, we're going to pay a little bit of a tribute to uh, Toby Hooper, who uh, passed away recently. And we're going to be looking at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And by the way, chainsaw is two separate words. I don't give a fuck what anyone says. The mistake on the fucking <laughs> uh, initial posters that uh, makes chainsaw two different words, that's the title of the goddamn film. And if you disagree, you're an asshole. Just saying. I didn't even know that was a debate, but I'm happy to, to learn it's, that. It's a debate with me. So there's an official <laughs> Tim Badoff's position on the title of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's and right. It's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and we're going to be talking about it next episode. We had a lot of fun doing these Lovecraft episodes. I'm, I'm glad I was able to introduce Daniel to some Lovecraft stuff and pique his interest to... Uh, Check out some more stuff. So uh, my job is done. 
Honestly, <laughs> I mean any any Lovecraft that has Barbara Crampton like you know restrained to a <sighs> to a table is is definitely you know on on my on my to on my to do list. You know? Oh my god! If if Lovecraft talked about Barbara Crampton's bush in his stories, they would be so much better. But still, <laughs> at least he we died, got he it died a little bit. He died a little bit early for that, I think. You know. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interweb. And yeah. um, I do a lot of stuff uh, sporadically. Um, check out uh, wrong, the Wrong with Authority podcast. Yes, want that? There'll be a link to the most recent one I did about Romero. And uh, just come follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. Um, anything that I do goes up there. Um, yeah, that's probably the the two best things to do right now for this episode. Awesome. TMBDOS.podbean.com. That is where you find us. That is where you find our iTunes or slash Apple podcast, however you want to fucking say it, link. You can find our YouTube link there, and you can find our Facebook link there. And our Facebook link will take you right to our Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. Join the fucking group and interact with us because that's what we want. We want people to leave us comments, questions, suggestions for movies to review, criticisms. You don't like us? You don't like what we're doing? Let us know. I mean, for the most part, we're probably going to just mock you because we're you're just probably wrong. Doing, we've been doing this long enough. You know, what What else are we going to do? We, yeah. get, we, get our, we get our 15 listeners a week. Who cares? We hit the yeah. big time, baby. We, we, we are big time, yeah. Um, but no... Um, Honestly, if, if, if people have suggestions for what they want to see us do, we're definitely open to it. I mean, we're, we're kind of considering, you know, changing things up here and there, you know, not necessarily always covering movies so much as uh, covering topics and things like that. So, I mean, if you, if you guys want to suggest that shit, please do, because we're really open to that. Uh, it would be something fun to engage in. And we really do want your comments and questions and stuff. We really do want to talk to you guys and engage with you guys. I, I know we have a lot of listeners. I mean, for us, we have a lot of listeners. I mean, we're, we're getting like upwards of 50 to 80 or so downloads uh, an episode over the span of, you know, like a month and a half or so for each episode. So I know people are listening and we want to hear what you guys have to say about our fucking podcast, even if you're just fucking sucking our dicks. We'll take that too, motherfucker. We love it. And so, if you're Barbara Crampton, we will definitely take that. Oh yeah, Barbara Crampton. Uh, our dicks are both here, <laughs> waiting. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Barbara. <laughs> that that is so terrible. But Miss uh, Crampton, if you're nasty, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Miss Crampton, so terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, we love you though. Um, but yeah, uh, guys, please, really seriously get in contact with us and until next time thank you very much for listening and goodbye goodbye
How arrogant of us, creatures of the moment, whose very species is but an experiment in Deus Nature, to arrogate to ourselves an immortal future and considerable status. How do we know that that form of atomic and molecular motion called life is the highest of all forms? Perhaps the dominant creature, the most rational and godlike of all beings, is an invisible gas. Personally, I should not care for immortality in the least. There is nothing better than oblivion, since in oblivion there is no wish unfulfilled. We had it before we were born, yet did not complain. Shall we then whine because we know it will return? The mammals, of which man is part, are simply a psychochemical phenomenon, a component of carbon animated by a form of electric energy. When this energy disappears and the body disintegrates, everything is finished. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group, as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs> <laughs>